Uh, we have been in a series traveling through the book of Romans, and so if you have your Bibles, you can flip over there. We're in, coming to the end of our series. We're going to take a time out for the summer, and then we'll get to Romans chapter 9 when we get to the, summer, uh, the fall. Uh, but today we're wrapping up Romans chapter 8, and so if you have your Bibles, you can flip over there. Paul, at the end of Romans chapter 8, kind of has a crescendo of encouragement for us. Um, with regard to some certain things, uh, talking about salvation, talking about future glorification, we'll see those certain things come up here. So um, our text for today comes from Romans chapter 8. We're going to begin reading at verse 31. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. We begin reading at verse 31 all the way through down to 39. So hang in there with me. It's a little bit of extra reading today. Here we go, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You may be seated. And that was a mouthful, I know. And believe it or not, we're going to get through all of that today. So um, let's go ahead and dive in, beginning at verse 31. Paul begins, opens up verse 31 with a section saying, what shall we say to these things? Now, what things is Paul talking about? What are the things that he has in mind? Well, we've got to go back to what Paul has just been talking about to find out what these things are. So let's go back to verse 29, and we'll find out what these things are. He says, For whom God foreknew, he also predestined. predestined. That word foreknew uh, indicates that God can, knows the future, that God can look down the corridor of time. He can see the end from the beginning, that God knows all things. And then he says that, um, what is it that he foreknew? He, he foreknew that those whom he predestined. And that word predestined means that God had a destination in mind for us. And what is this destination that God established? Would it be that all people would become Christians? No, that's not the destination that God has in mind. Would it be that all would become pastors and preachers and Bible teachers? Again, that's not what the text says. Is it that all would live a sin-free life? Again, not what the text says. That's not the destination that the Apostle Paul has in mind. Instead, he says that God's predestination concerns all people being conformed to the image of his Son, that is, to Christ likeness. And that is exactly the will of God for each and every believer, to become like Christ in part in this life and completely in the next. Furthermore, verse 30, remember that these are the things, okay, verse 30, he says, and those whom God 
predestined, he also called. That term calling is not referring to somebody, they're calling to become a pastor. Rather, it's referring to the idea that you would, uh, the wooing of the Holy Spirit. Wesley called this prevenient grace. It's when the Holy Spirit comes upon a person who's not a believer and uh, convicts them of the sin in their life, convicts them of the sin in their heart, and their need for repentance, their need to become a follower of Jesus and have their sins forgiven. That's the calling he has in mind. He says there in verse 30, still in verse 30, and those whom he called, he also justified. That is becoming righteous in God's sight, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Again, thinking about life beyond the grave. It is interesting that all of these verbs that occur here in these verses occur in the past tense. Do you notice that? He's not talking about future glorification, well, he is talking about future glorification here, but he talks about it as though it's something that has already happened. Paul gives the sense by using past tense language here that the things about which he is talking about, these things, justification, sanctification, future glorification, that these things are as good as done. That's the indication here in the text. And so what are these things? Well, i got a slide here for you. Uh, they are God's foreknowledge, God's calling us to repentance, uh, the uh, wooing of the Holy Spirit, God's desire that all believers will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We use a fancy word in Scripture called sanctification to refer to that process of we, us becoming like Christ in this life, but then completely like Christ in the next. Justification and glorification. I did not include on my little list up there the idea of God's foreknowledge, because God's foreknowledge is something that's His. It's not something that's ours. So the four things that I put on the board up there are the things that apply to us. They are the process of salvation that exists in God's foreknowledge that takes place when we decide to follow Jesus and continues with our conformity to the likeness of Christ's sanctification, and it culminates in future glorification. And all of it, Paul says, is as good as done. And so that's what he's talking about when he says these things in verse 31. I just want to point out, because I did a lot of reading this past week, just to make sure that I had my, dot, my I's dotted and my T's crossed. Um, I did a lot of reading of Wesley's original works and some of his essays this past week, and John Wesley disagrees with none of this stuff. Um, he agreed with God's foreknowledge. He agreed with God's sovereign control over the universe. That was not his issue. The issue that Wesley raised, and we're going to get into this in depth when we get to Romans chapter 9, in the fall, was the issue between does a person get to choose justification? Uh, in other words, the idea between free will and determinism. Does God determine who it is that will be in heaven versus do we get to choose whether or not we get to respond to God's uh, calling to the wooing of the Holy Spirit for repentance? So that's what we'll get to in the fall. Got to hang, hang in there until we get to that. So Paul asks, what should we say to these things. In other words, what kind of surety exists with regard to these things? And Paul's response comes in the form of five rhetorical questions. We read those questions just a few moments ago. We read through these scriptures, and it's a little Q&A opportunity for the Apostle Paul. And so let's kind of jump into these together. So Paul's kind of given us some confidence how we can know that God's going to give us some assurance that God's going to follow through on our justification, our sanctification, and our future glorification. All right? So here we go. Question number one, rhetorical question number one, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now that question begins with a statement. It begins with a declaration that God is for us. And then the question, who could possibly be against us? Let's first uh, deal with the declaration itself. Um, some preachers have taken that to mean that God is for us, that God is for our success. So what they have in mind here is worldly success, that God is for our decisions. He is automatically approves of our plans and our behavior, our ideas, even our theology. But friends, that is a falsehood. God does not conform to 
the way we think, but rather we are to conform to the way God thinks. And God only approves of what we are doing and what we are thinking and of our plans insofar as those things match up to his, uh, his intentions, his plans for our lives. You say, well, how do I know what God's plan for my life is? Well, friends, I can tell you right off the bat what God's general plans for your life are. That is for you to be justified, for you to come into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, for you to be sanctified, for you to be conformed into the, in, into the image of Jesus Christ, to take on his behavior, to take on his attitude, to take on his motives in life, and for you to be future, to experience future glorification. That is that you will one day land on the shores of heaven. Friends, the rest of everything else it's just details, okay? That's God's will for your life. So to be clear, when Paul says God is for us, he has in mind these things. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3, Paul writes, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, verse 4, who desires all people to be saved and to come to this knowledge of the truth. That's God's will for our lives. So to, again, to be clear, what Paul says when he says God is for us, he has in mind these things. He's not talking about our success. Plenty of sold-out Christians, plenty of fully surrendered believers in Jesus Christ have been broke and have been persecuted, and some have even been martyred. So don't let anyone sell you on some falsehood that God for us is somehow tied to your worldly success. When the Bible says that God is for us, it is not meaning that God is for your worldly success. That's not what it has in view. Again, these scriptures have in view your justification, your sanctification, and your future glorification. Um, and when it comes to those things, who can possibly stand against God? Amen? All right, will it be Nero? Because remember, Paul's writing to the Romans here, and they had a guy who was in charge of that part of the world. His name was Nero. And Nero was a bad dude. And Paul's writing this letter to these folks. And if you're a Christian in Rome, you hadn't just heard about some of the persecutions that were happening. You had actually seen some of the persecutions that were happening to Christians. Perhaps it was some of your friends. Perhaps it was some of your neighbors. Perhaps it was some of your fellow church members who had been thrown to the lions, who had been uh, burned and uh, on, on, impaled on posts and lit the, uh, lining the city streets and lit on fire. Some of this, uh, some of this letter's recipients perhaps attended the beheading of the great apostle Peter. Think about that. Some of these people who Paul is writing to here were very much first-hand experience of the persecutions of Nero. And so, friends, Paul is not trying to sell these Roman Christians, nor you and I, on some pie-in-the-sky false optimism about how God is never going to let anything bad happen to us, and that God is completely for our success, and that we're supposed to just, you know, go on to life and prosper in this life. Um, that's not what the Bible is saying here. Paul is talking about these things. Paul is assuring a group of people for whom devotion to Jesus may well mean being burned alive. And so on the issue of salvation, to be reminded that God's got this, that's a real point of hope for them. For the issue of our future glorification, that's a real point of hope for these suffering Christians. Friends, if God is for these things, who is possibly going to undo it? Who is possibly going to negate it? Who is possibly going to thwart God's intention here? Is Nero going to do it? No. How about your own personal struggle with sin? We covered that several weeks back. Um, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 that says, Therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that we cannot sin our way out of a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And so God is for these things for us. And friends, where God is involved, it is as good as done. All right, so rhetorical question number two. You say, that was a really long time getting through number one. Are you sure you weren't going to get out of here today? We'll move a little bit quickly, more quickly. So let's look at verse 32. Um, he says, quite rhetorical question number two. He says, how can we have confidence in these things? Because God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Again, there's the statement, there's the, the affirmation, the declaration that God gave his one and only son up for you and I, sent Jesus to the cross to die for your sins and mine. In other words, God demonstrated the lengths to which he was willing to go. God demonstrated the love for which he has for us. And God demonstrated the importance for which he regards us. God gave up the very best that he had. And so why are any of us sitting around in our little puddle of worry, worried about whether or not God can actually save us and forgive us of our sins, worried about whether or not God can actually sanctify us, lead us to become more and more like Jesus? Why are we sitting around worried whether or not God can handle future glorification and give us our resurrected bodies and place us in a glorified world? Why are we sitting around worried about that when God gave his one and only son? What more does God have to demonstrate? to show us that he has the power to do these things that he's promised. I would kind of, it's almost like Paul's kind of laughing at his audience. You see that? Maybe you don't see that. Maybe it'll come to you later. I saw that this week. I thought, Paul's just, I mean, he's just pouring it on, just letting them know. I mean, God's done all these amazing things for you. Of course he's going to be able to do the things for which he's promised. I kind of, in my mind, I kind of thought it would be equated to somebody who's sitting in the middle of the grocery store and they're surrounded by food, all kinds of fresh produce and, and perishable items and non-perishable items, tons of stuff to choose from. They've got millions of dollars in their pocket, and they're sitting there just biting their fingernails and worried whether or not they'll be able to have dinner that night. <laughs> and that's kind of what the Apostle Paul's saying here, is that God did all of this. He sent Jesus here to the, this world, had him die on a cross for your sins and mine. Of course, of course, he's got this issue of your salvation uh, in, uh, in hand. Um, and so God gave us Jesus. What more could he do? All right, verse 33, uh, Paul's third rhetorical question. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And by elect, Paul is referring to believers here. That's who he has in view. Again, we'll deal with the topic of election when we get to the fall in Romans chapter 9. So we've got some things we get to, to look forward to. But for now, Paul is talking about believers, uh, believers in Christ, know that. And so who's going to bring a charge against them? That is, who's going to accuse God's people? And Paul reminds, when it is God who justifies. You know, the word justification, we talked about that some weeks back, um, that is a word, it's a courtroom word, and it refers to the fact that we've been declared not guilty. So we've got this holy God, we've got you and I who have done unholy things, and when we stand before a holy God, you would think, well, we're considered unholy, and so God would send us to the punishment that we deserve. But because we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we are covered in the blood of Jesus, our sins are forgiven and atoned for, and so because of that, we're able to safely and securely stand in the presence of this holy God. That's justification. And so what Paul is asking is, because God has justified us, has declared us justified, I mean, who could possibly stand before God and say, oh, but you don't know about so-and-so? You say, well, actually, there are a few people. That if God wanted to bring up, you know, when I'm standing before him, he could, you know, parade those people out in front of him. You know, they could say, well, you don't know about what he did or you don't know about who she hurt and, and what happened there. And so there are some people in our lives. But Paul again reminds us, who's going to bring a charge against you? Who's going to bring a charge against me when it is God who justifies? Remember, or justification is not performance-based. 
We're not saved by works. We're not saved by what we do right. We're not saved by doing good enough. And then God says, okay, now I'll let you into heaven. Remember, we're saved by the putting our faith and our trust in the work that Jesus did on the cross, not by our own performance. And so God is the one who justifies, not me. God's not sitting around counting, saying, you know, the, the scales tip this way, now the scales tip back this way, and finally we want to level out and hope our scale goes in the right direction. God's saying, you know what? Jesus did all the work, and so we put our faith and trust in him, and so God justifies us. Who's going to undo that? You say, um, again, notice that the response to Paul's question, who would bring a charge against the believers? It is God who justifies. Um, Question number four, rhetorical question number four. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Remember, condemnation means damnation. It means who is going to send us to hell. And so Paul reminds us that we have Jesus Christ, the one who died, and more than that, who was raised from the dead, and who is now seated at the right hand of God. In Bible times, when somebody sat down, you see there that says that Jesus sat down. In Bible times, when somebody sat down, it was a sign that their work was complete, that things were finished. And uh, if you study the Old Testament and you look at the tabernacle, you look at the temple complex, you'll notice that there's a piece of furniture that is not present inside of the tabernacle or inside of the temple. And that was that there were no chairs. There's plenty of tables, there's plenty of altars, there's plenty of lamps. There's all sorts of furnishings, but there were no chairs. And the reason for that is that the high priest would have to go in and make sacrifices for the sins of the people again and again and again because his work was never done. His work was never done. His work was never done, right? He just had to keep doing this over and over again. And so he had to keep making these sacrifices. But when Jesus, after his crucifixion, after his resurrection, after his ascension back to heaven, Jesus completed his work and he declared it is that's right. It was finished. Um, he sat down because his work was finished. And so we refer to the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross as the finished work of Jesus. The once and for all sacrifice for sins had been made. And then Paul concludes, end of verse 34, and now Jesus is interceding for us, and, and I might add, concerning these things, justification, our sanctification, and our future glorification. Who is going to possibly uh, condemn us? Is Satan himself going to condemn us? Is he going to step out and say, oh, no, no, Jesus. I mean, I know that you went on that cross. I know that you died. I know that you lived that perfect life. But there was a little hiccup in there. And there were some things that weren't quite right. And so, Jesus, you need to go do it again. Is that what Satan's going to do? No, of course not. It is finished. Jesus declared that, the work that he completed on the cross, and then he sat down. Rhetorical question number five, number five, verse 35. Last one. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Again, all these things are points that Paul's making uh, to remind us that we can have confidence in our faith in Christ, that we can have confidence in the things that God has promised us, our justification, our sanctification, and our future glorification. And so he says, question number five, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You know, when I think about the love of Jesus, I think about the love that I have for my own girls. I don't believe there's anybody on this earth, and I'd argue it, that loves my girls as much as their mother and I do. I don't believe there's anybody that does. I know that there are a lot of people who love them, and I know there are a lot of people who care about them deeply, but I don't think there's anybody who rocked them to sleep as much as I did when they were, when they were upset. There was nobody like their mother and I who helped encourage them and comfort them when the world had been cruel to them. There was nobody who um, helped bandage them up and encourage them like their mom and I did. 
And certainly no one has sacrificed as much for our girls as their mom and I do. And I imagine that you moms and dads out there would agree when it comes to your own children, you'd feel the same way about them, that no one loves them as much and that no one has sacrificed as much for your children as you have. And that's the kind of love that's in view here. Paul uses the Greek word for love, the word agape. It's a word that means a sacrificial kind of love. And this is the kind of love that the Bible is declaring that Christ has for you. So Paul asked the question for our consideration, who could separate us from that kind of love? Who could separate us from God when God agapes us or sacrifices for us in this way? And for the sake of the argument, Paul rolls out quite a long list of potential candidates of people who possibly could separate us from the love of God. He says, verse 35, shall tribulation or distress or persecution, this takes us back to Nero. You know, is Nero going to stop God's love for you? How about uh, famine or nakedness or danger or sword? All these are calamities that did befall Christians back in that first century. Is that going to stop God's agape love? Verse 36, quoting here from the Psalms, Paul writes, As it is written, For your sake, O God, we are being killed all the day long. I mean, this is what the people who are receiving this letter are experiencing in their present. We are being led like regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. These folks were up against it. I'm sure that they had moments of doubt, moments where they wondered, God, are you sure that you love me as they're about ready to be lit on fire? As they're thinking about their wife who's in jail, as they're seeing their neighbor get hauled off to face the lions. Verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. The ancient Greeks uh, believed in the, in the stars had great influence, and they believed that every star represented one of the Greek gods. And that any time a star at a certain time of the year got to the zenith, got to its highest point in the sky, they believed that that was the moment when that star, when that God had the greatest influence on things that were going on in this earth. And so Paul writing to an audience that would have been tuned into that sort of context, that sort of understanding of the God says, not even that, not even the power of, this, of what you believe in, these, these spiritual gods, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from our Father's love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, no matter where my kids go, no matter what my kids do, whether life goes this way, that way, right side, left side, whatever, my, how I feel about them will never change. And that is the kind of love that God has in view here in these verses. All right, let's sum up. What should we say about these things, about our justification, our sanctification, and our future glorification? How can we be confident in these things? Well, rhetorical question number one, God is for these things in us. Uh, who's going to possibly stop God from making these things happen? Verse 2, God the Father gave God the Son, demonstrating how serious he was about making sure that we could be justified, sanctified, and glorified. Number three, God justifies us. We don't have to stand and defend ourselves. God did all the work that was necessary. Number four, the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And finally, number five, God's agape love, his sacrificial love for us, is something we can look to to have confidence that indeed God will accomplish these things for us. All right. 
Um, so that's our text for today. And so I got one more question for us. It's the question I love to ask each week around here. What difference does all this make to my life? Um, when I was in college, I like to go, believe it or not, you look at me now and say, I don't think so. But I like to go rock climbing and rappelling. And I still have some of the gear that we used to use back in the day. And I was standing down here thinking about what I was going to preach earlier. And I thought, I wonder if that rope would still hold me. But in any case, we used to go do these things. And uh, I got a picture for you here of where we used to go. This place is called High Bridge, Kentucky. And it was the first cantilever bridge ever to be built in North, uh, in North America. Um, and it's 275 feet-ish from the top of that bridge where the, where the train goes across um, down to the water surface below, 275 feet. I can remember my brother telling me the story. This is close to where we went to college in Kentucky, telling me the story of how he and some of his buddies walked out on that bridge, which I never did. I like to have things attached to me before I go out on heights. But they walked out on that bridge. Mom and Dad, just plug your ears. And um, they took a pumpkin, <laughs> and they dropped the pumpkin off of the bridge, I guess people did this back in the day, and he said it was like a massive shockwave through this whole uh, valley, the river valley. It was pretty amazing. So anyway, if you ever want to go to Highbridge, Kentucky, take a pumpkin with you. I guess that's a lesson. But we would actually do some our climbing. I think there's two pictures. There's another picture that shows some of the palisades along the, the cliff edges along the river. And so those, those cliff edges are where we would climb. Um, it was limestone, and so we would climb all around there. We'd top rope, and then we would repel some, some of the stuff. Um, but anyhow, it was really fun when you get out there and, and you're tying, you find a really solid tree, right? And you tie your rope off to that tree, and then you get ready to rappel down. And so anytime we had somebody new that was with us, one of the jokes I like to play was we get them out there on the edge of the cliff. We get them all tied into their gear and everything. They're getting ready to lower down. They're shaking, and they're nervous, and their face is all red. And I would stop and just say, hey, before you go, do you know Jesus? <laughs> And I would usually get a, a very, not very nice look. Uh, but anyhow, then they, they go rappel down. Well, I remember one of the times we took a new guy with us, and we got out there. We were actually top rope climbing, and he was working his way up <clears throat> from the bottom, and we were, we were taking in the, the slack. And uh, he got to a place where he was just stuck. I mean, maybe he's 50 feet up. I don't know exactly how high he got, but he was just totally stuck. He couldn't make whatever the next move he needed to make, couldn't find the next hold. And so for about five minutes or so, he was just, just looking just frantically, and you could just see he was getting more and more intense. And then he finally experienced muscle fatigue. I don't know if you've ever seen anybody who's rock climbing that experienced muscle fatigue, but literally their muscles will just start, their feet will start shaking and bouncing, and their arms, their forearms are just completely pumped all the way, and, they're, and they're, everything in their body's just shaking. And this guy, all he had to do, right, he's tied to a rope. All he had to do, because he was stuck, was just let go. Just let go of the rock. You'll swing out. It'll catch you. I mean, we're hollering up at him. Hey, just let go. You know, the rock, you're tied to a rope. You're, the tree, you know, is fine. And, and you'll swing out, and you'll be fine, and we'll lower you down, and you can try it again. But he had, like, a death grip on this, on this rock, and he was just not going to let go. And so finally, he got to the place where his muscles just couldn't hold on any longer. Um, he could not hang on to this cliff anymore, and he just you know, he let go, not because he wanted to, but because he had to. He didn't have a choice. <clears throat> My point is this. When it comes to these things in Scripture, my justification, my sanctification, my future glorification, these are not contingent on whether or not I can hold on to God. They are contingent on whether or not God can hold on to me. If it was up to me, friends, I would have failed a long time ago. 
I would get spiritual muscle fatigue, and I would watch my friend get lit on fire, literally, for Jesus Christ, and I would have moments of real doubt. Does God really love me? And of God's promises. But thank God what these verses are saying is that these things don't depend on my ability to hold on to God, but rather on God's ability to hold on to me. And friends, when we get that in our mind, when we begin to live that reality forward, it gives us such great freedom to love our Heavenly Father, to live for our Heavenly Father, to recognize what He has accomplished for us. This, this whole thing isn't based on my performance. It's based on God's ability to hold on to me. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these truths that are written right there in your holy word. God, we just ask that we would um, take what you have presented with us today, that it would encourage our hearts in moments when we're struggling, in moments when we're fighting with sin and wanting to live for you, in moments, God, where bad things are happening around us and we're wondering, do you really love us? Lord, all of this, our sanctification, our justification, our glorification, it doesn't, it's not contingent on how we're feeling in that moment. It's contingent on your ability to hold on to us. And so we thank you that you are the almighty God. As we gather now to be reminded of your shed blood and of your broken body, Lord Jesus, we're reminded of what made all of this possible. We thank you for this wonderful display of your love. Encourage us this morning as we rem remember your sacrifice for us. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Communion elements are there in the seat in front of you. We invite you to join in a time of communion, and then we'll close with a worship song.